Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Diotis Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. This is our 20th episode. Hard to believe we've been at it for almost five months. We're trying to do deeper dives into the research, my favorite thing to do. And Ed is the man for finding obscure texts that I must have. Every time we do drop an episode, I stumble onto another fun fact, something else to round out the story we've already finished with. We'll be taking a few weeks off this summer to be announced, to catch up on the research because we have some wonderful topics coming up from regional Greek spiritual beliefs to Molina Makuri, Greek festivals, and the Parthenon marvels, as well as Greece's entry into World War II. We're not Hardcore History, which is an awesome podcast that goes into incredible detail with four-hour-long podcasts, but we do want to find the most interesting information we can to include on every topic we cover. So occasionally we'll be following the lead of another one of our favorite podcasts, Stuff You Missed in History Class. They do a brief revisit of topics they've already covered with additional tidbits they've come up with to add to the story. So, pedia. Today on This and That Volume 2, we're going to share some more about past episodes, Cats in Greece, sports superstar Hariagannis, and why Greeks spit. Feel free to message or email if you have anything to add or have a question about anything we've discussed. While sitting in a doctor's waiting room a couple of weeks ago, I took a second look at one of our sources for the Cats in Greece episode, Classical Cats by Donald Engels. Returning the book to the library was my next stop that morning, and while I waited, I read the introduction for the first time. I'm usually looking specifically for certain information, so I'm not always reading the introduction. So I sat and I read the introduction. Engels talked about the book Cats in the Sun by photographer Han Sylvester saying it was the go-to book about cats in modern Greek villages. The man spent a year studying and photographing cats in the Kikladis Islands. My mother had that book, but we couldn't find it. It wasn't in any of the libraries in our local system. Engels says it's the best description of photographic essay on village cats in existence. It came out in 2000, and this is where I think a lot of those Cats in Greece calendars and note cards came from, because he's an excellent photographer. This is why I need to spend more time with my sources. I'm currently speed reading through the chapters I need to get the podcast dropped in time. The curse of a two-person operation. So I'm going to take some of um, Engels' quotes of Sylvester, one of which is saying that village cats know every house, garden, roof, shrub, tree, and hiding place, and every human or animal in the village. Quote, They see a dog at a distance and know at once how to behave towards that particular creature. They know who's going to feed them, who's going to be affectionate, and who's going to be abusive towards them, and adjust their manners accordingly. The cats on the Kikladis Islands have adapted their survival skills around the biggest predator in their environment, people. But they also have the Greek attitude of just enjoy life. They may have to duck an unfriendly dog or the cat-hating shop owner, but they're going to go for the love and attention whenever they spot a friend. They have that sixth sense. They know when bad weather is coming, and they know when the fishermen will be coming into port. They will literally be sitting on the dock long before anyone can hear or see the fishing boats coming. 
If you question this, when Ed and I were first married, we lived on the top floor of an apartment building near the elevator. The elevator went up and down all day, but our cat, Mo, always knew when Ed was on it from the moment he stepped in on the ground floor. And he never got home at the exact same time. Mo just always knew, and she'd be sitting at the front door waiting for him. Like the cats of the islands sit on the docks waiting for their fishing boats to come back. I was also reviewing the early introduction of cats into Europe by the Greeks beginning in the 8th century BCE. On the podcast, we talked about the benefit of cats keeping down the population of mice and rats over the weasels and ferrets that used to patrol Greek homes and food stores. Cats were overwhelmingly better at the job. But we didn't go into the full impact the introduction of cats had on Greece and Europe. And another reason for Europe to be eternally grateful to the Greeks. Engels says, quote, Without domesticated cats from Egypt, originally imported into the continent by the Greeks, European towns, villages, and farms would have been frequently overrun by mice and rats. It's believed that cats kept down many of the diseases spread by rodents over hundreds upon hundreds of years. The Black Plague was caused by flea-infested rats. The simultaneous widespread famine caused partly by the death of so many farm workers plus unchecked rodents resulted in incredible levels of death throughout Europe. Was this a god-awful smack back for the years of superstitious Europeans massacring cats? The nutty Western European Dark Ages twist on Christianity was responsible for persecuting and executing people accused of being witches. Maybe because the neighbors didn't like them, were jealous of them, or maybe because they were midwives. And because it was hard to get much stupider than that, the poor cats were victimized because some of the unpopular people, or the midwives, had cats as pets. So that made them witches' familiars. It was a horrific time to be a cat. It just goes to show, even back then, people calling themselves Christians were actually more interested in attacking others than following the golden rule. The M-word comes to mind. There's no scholarly consensus on the impact a thriving cat population would have had on the plague, but some scholars do think cats could have slowed the disease's march across Europe. Now, if only modern Greece would follow Turkey and Egypt and other Muslim countries in their attitudes towards cats. Mohammed loved cats and forbade harming or killing them. We've linked one of my favorite videos of an imam and his cat friend during prayers. Remember the story of the cat that protected baby Jesus from snakes in the manger? And cats keep the mouse population under control. So show some respect. I actually like mice. I love critters in general, but they can't be allowed to run rampant. P.S. In case you're wondering, we have a mousy update. We finally caught the mouse that had been that it had us disinfecting our kitchen twice a day with uh, humane trap number two. Number one was broken, and we didn't know it until the cheese disappeared twice without triggering it. I escorted the mouse out of the house myself to a woody spot at the back end of our yard and released it in hopes it wouldn't turn right back around and go in the house. And it didn't. Two weeks later, no sign. Happy ending. We have some updates on our Harry Agonis episode. The athlete extraordinaire who died suddenly at the age of 26 during his second season with the Red Sox. I'd ordered his biography, Harry Agonis, The Golden Greek, and All-American Story, by Nick Siotos and Andy DeBillis weeks before we dropped the podcast. Unfortunately, it didn't arrive until a few weeks after we dropped the podcast. 
We'd used an article Tiotos and Debilis wrote about Harry, but as expected, the book had so much more to it. And it's so Greek. The stories about Harry and his family and friends, if you're Greek or are entertained by Greeks, I recommend it. I couldn't find it in any public library or college library in my area, at least not one that I was allowed to borrow from. Online, some of the sellers had lost their minds for the amount of money they were asking for a paperback book. This is why I had to wait for it. But I think I could probably do a second full-length podcast with the material in the book. It was printed in 1995, but I think they should reissue it so every Greek library and Greek school can get a copy. Greek pride. There were many more stories about his athletic exploits and a lot of reminiscences of people who knew him and talked about the kindness he showed others. He visited neighborhood grannies who were sick and lonely, made sure everyone had tickets to a game, including a disabled young man who was Harry's biggest fan. Harry was renovating his mother's house to make her more comfortable because she wouldn't let him build a new one on a plot of land outside of the neighborhood. He loved his mother. What a good Greek boy. I fell in love with this big kid who died years before I was born. Aristoteles Saganis was well-named. Aristo means excellent. Telos means the end or to the end. He was excellent to the end. I loved that all of his old college teammates interviewed by the authors praised Harry to the heavens, but everyone complained that he was always, quote, spouting that the Greeks were responsible for just about everything great in the world. Yes, they are. It's not just my mother or Gus in my big fat Greek writing. All of the Greeks do it. And they're right, of course. And more of the stereotypes we live with because they're true. All of the big shot Greeks Harry met as he became more important wanted Harry to marry their daughters. He was constantly meeting people's eligible daughters, like, yes, I'll contribute to your scholarship fund for college athletes. I'll send my beautiful, unmarried, pure, although undoubtedly fertile daughter to deliver it to you. Come for dinner. Harry's older brothers taught him to play baseball. He was 20 years younger than his oldest brother and the only one of the seven children to graduate college. He was the hope and pride of that family. His father, as we said in the podcast, uh, worked as a manual laborer, like most new immigrants to this country. But he spoke four languages and then learned English so he could translate between the other workers at his factory and management. The wife and sister-in-law of my Theothanasi were very educated women from a well-to-do Greek family who lost everything when communists took control of Romania. They spoke Greek, French, Romanian, and Italian. And then they came to the U.S. to work with my uncle in a shoe factory. We really don't know anything about the immigrants working in this country. Greeks were still very much looked down on in the 50s and in the 70s when my uncle and aunts came. It must have been wonderful for his family to watch Harry succeed at everything he did. I found out that during his second year with the Red Sox, he told one of his brothers he'd been offered a contract by the Baltimore Colts to play football during the off-season. This guy was the Energizer Bunny, or in his case, the Energizer Lagolaki. Almost right up to the end, he seemed absolutely unstoppable. I think everybody who heard his story had to wonder about that lump on Harry's leg that he'd shown to his girlfriend, Jean, weeks before his death. It wound up being phlebitis, an inflammation of a vein in his right calf that eventually flew off the, uh, threw off the clot that killed him. In the bio, it says he broke that leg when he was 14 playing sports. Like everyone else trying to understand how a strong, healthy young man could die like that, 
I wondered if a possible re-injury on that spot could have created the phlebitis, but it's, it's not exactly likely. I went to the National Institute of Health, and they had an article that said hard-playing athletes like Harry likely developed phlebitis from injuries while playing. I like that broken leg, but uh, Harry was always sliding into bases and getting contusions because that's kind of how it starts. Unfortunately, he kept playing with that lump on his leg, never mentioning it to the doctors, who only discovered it when he went into the hospital with pneumonia right before he died. Thankfully, sports teams today are better educated about sports injuries and they're taken seriously. It's heartbreaking that the be tough and push through attitude of Harry's day may have contributed to his death. But there was something else in the biography that really fascinated me. There were two instances recounted in the book about a very Greek experience toward the end. What might be called by others mystical experiences the first involved Harry's cousin, Celadonis. The night before Harry's death, which was not expected by anyone, not even his doctors, the night before his death, Stella dreamt about Harry. First, she saw the Agonis family home falling apart. Then she saw Harry at the church he'd helped to build, St. George. Inside, standing in front of the icon of the Theotokos, the mother of God, he lit a candle, placed it in a holder, and walked over to the image of the Theotokos that sits on the panel of icons that separates the altar from the rest of the church, the Akonastasi. In front of that icon, just to the left of the entrance to the altar, he made the sign of the cross, blessing himself. Very soon, Harry's casket would sit close to that spot, and the priest in the church would be praying to that very same icon in his memory. A lot of people get impatient or roll their eyes when people talk about dreams like this. I know my dad did but not Greeks, not if they haven't overcompensated for their ethnic roots. You can believe in science and also know there are things in this world we cannot explain, like anti-vaxxers. We've grown up with mothers or aunts or cousins who have had prescient dreams. Dreams and visitations or signs from God, from a loved one, are part of Greek life, a part of Greek experience. It gets spooky sometimes which makes the Telly Savalas story in the Agonis book especially hair-raising. Telly Savalas was a big, big Greek TV star in the 70s. He did a lot of movies before that, too, like The Dirty Dozen. On the popular TV show Kojak in the 70s, he played a Greek New York police detective with a Polish name. Maybe the character didn't start out Greek, but pretty soon Savalas made Kojak his own. He was a very cool guy. And again, I cannot even begin to explain what a big deal this man was to the Greek-American community. A later generation knew him as Jennifer Aniston's godfather. Anyway, 1988, so long ago, but 33 years after Harry Agonis died, Telly Savalas was on The Larry King Show, big talk show, and told a story about a night in his life in June of 1955. He was early in his acting career driving from New York City to New Jersey when he ran out of gas. And he started walking down this dark, empty road at 3 o'clock in the morning. A black Cadillac drives up, and a man in a white suit offers Savalas a lift to the gas station and lends him the money for gas. Savalas asks him to write down his name, address, and phone number on a piece of paper. The man, named Bill, does, and out of nowhere he tells Savalas, I know Harry Agonis. Surprisingly, Savalas claims that he didn't know who that was. Bill tells him Harry played for the Red Sox, and they part ways, with Telly planning on 
paying bill back later. Soon after this, Savala sees the headline on a New York newspaper saying, Harry Aganis of Boston Red Sox dies suddenly. Wow. He calls the Massachusetts phone number Bill gave him. Maybe to offer condolences, maybe it reminded him to pay the guy back. He asks the woman who answers the phone if he can talk to Bill, explaining how he knows him. And this was not long after this experience on the, the dark, empty road at 3 in the morning. The woman starts crying, telling Savalas that her husband, Bill, who did know Harry, had died three years earlier and was buried in a white suit. He'd driven a black Cadillac. This is weird enough. But eventually, Savalas meets this woman who shares with him a letter her husband wrote. The handwriting matched the piece of paper Savalas had with Bill's name and number written on it. I can hear people saying, Savalas made that up. That's ridiculous. Laka, laka, laka. I never knew the man. Although Mom was a big fan, mostly because he and his brother Costar used to have hilarious conversations in Greek during the Kojak episodes that nobody can understand except other Greeks. All I can tell you is this. Just about every single Greek person I know has stories like Stella Athanas or Tilly Savalas. I grew up listening to these stories of dreams of things that came to pass or encounters with people who helped someone out who were later found to be long dead, predictions made by by reading the coffee grounds, I would creep up on the adults as a kid, minor cousins and my ever skeptical Xanos father, sitting around the porch table smoking cigarettes, sharing melon and cheese, outdoing each other with these experiences. It's not superstition. Greek people, like other ethnic people, are just more open to things that cannot be easily explained. My Greek friends have told me these stories. I've experienced them. If enough people want to share some of these stories with us, we'll do an episode about them. I'm doing my stavro, the sign of the cross, right now. Memory eternal, Hariadanis, Aeonia imnini. Our last episode was Ftu, Ftu, Why Do Greeks Spit? And I hadn't found in the priest's service book the reference to the priest or godparents spitting during the baptism service in the Greek Orthodox Church. Listeners may remember from that episode that spitting and breathing on a sick person or a person in need of an exorcism is interchangeable. Throughout ancient Greek and Orthodox Church documents referencing spitting or breathing on someone, it's assumed they're the same. Because we're not literally hawking a spitball at somebody when we are spitting for protection, we're pushing air out of our pursed mouths, often making a pt, pt, or pt, pt sound. When I had a minute, I rewatched the YouTube video we'd linked to the episode. It was filmed in a Rochester, New York church where the priest was acknowledging, yup, there's spitting going on. We'd already discussed the priest blowing on the baptismal water, which is a basin large enough to immerse the baby. He blows on the water three times, making the sign of the cross. But the New York priest talks about spitting on the floor. So I grabbed the priest's service book again, which is in English and in Greek, so I could double check some of the vocabulary. And I reread the baptism service, which is actually in four parts from start to finish. I missed that. There's a mini service of exorcism preceding the actual baptism service like getting the baby prepared for the baptism. Here the priest breathes three times into the face of the baby, or whoever's about to be baptized, sort of disinviting any unwelcome spirits or darkness. Then the godparents are instructed to renounce Satan three times to prove they're worthy to be godparents. I mean, satanic godparents would kind of miss the point. The godparents are then instructed to blow toward the floor three times to show they mean it. Get thee out of here, Satan. We're spitting on you. 
The priest at one point also blows three times on the container of holy oil that the baby will be anointed with before being immersed in the baptismal water. These are very ancient traditions going back to the early origins of the Christian church. The symbolism of pushing back on evil, repelling it by spitting at it, and pushing back on all that is wrong in the world is meaningful and meant to be taken seriously. The hope is that the child and godparents and all of those in attendance will pledge to do this from that moment on, push back against evil, because that's what Christians are supposed to do, not try to legislate in favor of it. I'm not sure if it would work against the Proud Boys, but I'm willing to give it a try. We've linked the YouTube video of the Rochester priest explaining the importance of spitting in the church in the podcast notes. The channel is Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church, Rochester, New York. They have many educational videos that are pretty entertaining as well. Very cool priest. Now we're caught up on these three episodes. Until I stumble across more information I just have to share. Thank you for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode is researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Deodes Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Visit our website at stealthcreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at greek underscore like underscore me. See you next time. Yes. Yeah, so.